All right, I've got a couple more minutes with Adam Nedef. I think I nailed that. Yeah. Uh, you like that? That's yeah. good stuff. Uh, so we were talking, you know, you mentioned your your Facebook page. I, you know, kind of mysteriously mentioned our connections. But we have a very strange connection. A guy I went to college with who I was a big pro wrestling fan with. Uh, you are connected to on Facebook. You are also a big pro wrestling fan. But that is not how you and I met. And that's not how you and he met. This is a very strange little mix here. Uh, how did this happen? It's just uh, people friend me because, you know, when you're a public figure like I am, of course, um, of course. But yeah, I I've been writing uh, reviews of old wrestling shows from the 1980s as a hobby for about uh, 15 years now. I started doing this in 2000, like I said, 2008. I think mm-hmm. um, there was a website that said we're looking for people to just write reviews of old shows, and I submitted a sample, and they went ahead and said, yeah, you can go ahead and write for us, and it's free. I don't make any money at all for this. It's it's mm-hmm. completely an exposure gig, but it's a hobby, and it keeps me from getting bored with anything, um, and <laughs> right. it's fun. I started doing this 15 years ago just because it was a way to take my mind off of the fact that I was a telemarketer, and I completely hated that job. <laughs> um, yeah. Now I'm not a telemarketer anymore, and I'm still doing it because it's fun to discover all this old stuff. I was a yes. child of the World Wrestling Federation when Vince McMahon had taken over the whole world. And yep. prior to that, the pro wrestling business operated on what was called a territory system, where the entire United States was divided up into like 30 to 35 unique territories. Mm-hmm. Uh And all of the promoters agree that they stayed in their lane. They would stay in their territory and they would only do TV production in that area. And they would only promote shows in that area. So for example, I grew up in West Virginia. If I watched wrestling over in West Virginia, I would see a promotion called mid Atlantic championship wrestling, which was based out of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. If I went across the river to Ohio, I would see uh, completely different professional wrestling. I would see professional wrestling promoted either by, of all companies, Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was based in Atlanta, but they also promoted in Ohio. Or in northern Ohio, I would have seen shows from Big Time Wrestling, which was based in Detroit. So the entire country was divided into these territories, and everybody had their own wrestlers and their own championships. And Mm -hmm. uh, so now, after having grown up on just this steady diet of Vince McMahon's presentation, which was based out of Stamford, Connecticut, New York City. Mm-hmm. Now I'm watching all of these different pro wrestling shows that gradually disappeared as he took over and mm-hmm. just really learning to appreciate the difference in styles, the different ways that you can present pro wrestling. And it sounds like a weird thing when you're talking to somebody who's not a wrestling fan, because, and I understand this, if you're not a wrestling fan, Pro wrestling is pro wrestling. It probably all looks and sounds the same to you, but you're seeing the different styles in it. Like Memphis wrestling is a lot of brawling and a little bit of comedy in the presentation. Uh, mm-hmm. In Florida wrestling, it is pure athletes. Uh, very, very straightforward. Um, in the mid-Atlantic area, it's bloody. And in Texas, it's big, burly, tough guys just beating the hell out of each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the pro wrestling presentation was different in every part of the country. And so that's neat to watch is just watching it and being being able to appreciate, oh, this is the Memphis style of pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. This is the Tulsa, Oklahoma style of wrestling. (laughs) Right. Yeah. uh, Very specific. yeah. 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 Well, so how did that get to Facebook? We talk about Facebook. You went off on a, on a territory. So that's just how you met. Um, that's how people get you that's on how Facebook. I know people. So, yeah, that's Got how it. I know people. And one of the things that I've discovered over the years <laughs> is there is this weird Venn diagram overlap of game show fans and wrestling fans. Now, it's not 100 right. percent because 
I have plenty of fans of one or the other who will roll their eyes when I mention something else. But every now and then I'll make a point about pro wrestling and a game show fan friend will chime in and I'll do a double take like, whoa, you know what we're talking about? Or by the same token, I'll be talking something about game shows and somebody that I think of as a wrestling person will chime in and say, well, I think this and I'll wait, you're watching Jeopardy every night. And Mm -hmm. so it's. It's really interesting how, for whatever reason, those things go together. Uh, I don't know what the science is on this. I would love it if Yale funded a study to figure this out. But for some reason, pro wrestling fandom and game show fandom tend to go together. I love that. Well, I just did an episode with a a guy from Ringling Brothers, and he, you know, he was a clown for 36 years. And he said there was a lot of crossover between people in the circus and clowning and also pro wrestling. And so he was... (laughs) So, there, you know, and did they watch game shows? I don't know. I didn't think to ask him, but I may go back. So maybe they're a true three circle Venn diagram. And in the middle are game show clowning pro wrestlers. Well, the funny thing know. is, you know, pro wrestling, as we think of it, has its roots in the circus. That was like a sideshow right. in the circus. Um, yeah. A lot of pro wrestling, as we know, it came from Civil War veterans who wrestled like for something to do between battles. Right. And so they, just, <laughs> right. they developed these skills on the battlefield for just wrestling from wrestling your fellow soldiers uh, to stay alert and just for something new and then looking for someplace to make use of that. And a lot of them would wrestle at carnivals or wrestle at circuses. And the idea was you would challenge people from the audience to wrestle you on the spot and there would be a cash prize offered if anyone could beat you. And generally speaking, nobody could beat them. Um, But then that evolved into show business with people being planted in the audience uh, to make the guy look good. Uh, And then that evolved even further. P.T. Barnum is one of the people credited with coming up with fictitious biographies and fictitious names for the wrestlers in the circus. And that's how pro wrestling became pro wrestling. It's funny to hear that, but it makes sense from a historical standpoint that circuses and wrestling go together still. Yeah, it's still it's hand in hand. Well, I mean, and it's also interesting because, you know, there's a connection between game shows and it's the evolution, right? The evolution of pro wrestling is kind of fascinating. But the evolution of game shows, I think, is also super interesting because, I, as I mentioned, I got really into Survivor recently. Mm-hmm. And this is a show, like right around 2000, game shows kind of shifted. So you had like Survivor and The Bachelor, which still survive today, which are more like competition reality shows yeah. than game shows, really. Yeah. But they're still, fact, st- they're still structured kind of like game shows. Yeah. And in fact, there's, there's a term that came into existence in the 2000s. And we talked about uh, Bob Bowden and Bob hates this term but a term that you hear a lot in the tv business now is shiny floor shows uh game shows are the only genre on the face of the earth that are classified by the cleanliness of their floors but shiny floor shows was a term that came along to classify game show as opposed to survivor as opposed to big brother as opposed to the bachelor got it shiny floor show means a game show in the sense that you think of game show where they're in a studio and it's three contestants playing a game for a cash prize at the end of the show um stuff yeah but it's it's just this funny ridiculous term but as you said, as game shows evolved, it was this term that became necessary. There's probably a better way to classify them. Like as Bob said, there's probably a better way to explain this than by how clean the floor is. Um, But yeah, there's, it's kind of led to coming up with new terms for this kind of show or that kind of show, because, you know, survivor is like the bachelor, but it's also kind of not obviously, but also the bachelor is like the dating game, but also the dating game really isn't like this. So, right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. 
And that's well, the, 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 the dating game being so I get suckered into serialized storytelling. Right. That's why I love pro wrestling. It's why I love uh, I get suckered into soap operas. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before, but it, it happens. Adam, I've got dark secrets, too. You're not the only one. Uh, but I get suckered into the serialized storytelling. And I think when you have a show like even The Bachelor or Survivor, I get brought into the to not not the drama. Some people are really into like the drama part, but just how the story evolves over time. And it is like the dating game is almost like, well, what if you saw their relationship from the date to marriage and that was a season? Yeah. That's kind of like what The Bachelor is working off of, if, as if you could elongate that one event and let's let's see it get whittled down and turn it into something. I actually like that. It, it punches buttons for me, Adam. Well, yeah, and the, the other thing is you had a show come along in the 1980s, Love Connection, which was like the other side of the dating game where you, mm -hmm. the entire premise of Love Connection is you're finding out after the date what happened. Um, right. And that was Chuck even, Woolery, right? Yeah. And two and two even, and two? It is one of those shows that is hotly debated now among the game show fans about whether or not it qualifies as a game show because really there's mm. not any kind of a game happening when you watch it but also there's kind of a prize at the end because chuck keeps emphasizing if you go on this date we'll pay for it so yeah there is a <laughs> there's right. a yeah, yeah, yeah. prize as small as paying for dinner is there is some sort of prize involved <laughs> so there's a little bit of debate there but what's interesting yeah. is talking about this, this goes back to a point that Mark Goodson made. Mark Goodson was the big name among game show producers for many, many years, and he's an important right. name to know in the history of uh, television overall. But Mark Goodson was the game show mogul, and he openly said over the years he did not like the term game show. And the example he said was you take – look at three shows, Jeopardy! the newlywed game and what's my line. Those three shows have nothing in common and we're using the same term to classify all of them. And mm -hmm. that's, that's true. So, you know, there needs to be maybe right. more ways of saying that than just game show. But, you know, when you have a show and people are playing a game, it's pretty easy to settle on this one term for what all of them are. Yeah, they're all kind of games. They're all contests in one way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Love Connection is interesting. I never really thought about that. Uh, I mean, Blind Date is also similar. I love Blind Date as well because they tell you whole. They tell you the story of the date, uh, which which I really like. But you know, one of the things really the, the theme here is evolution, right? You know, the evolution of game shows, as you mentioned, goes back to it starts off with to tell the truth, and then it moves to Survivor and The Bachelor or whatever the next evolution is. But I think I have that next evolution here. I was reading this article. I'll put it up on my website where you know, hosts are being replaced by computers and AI. And you now you have even shows without a host, without a host proper. Like Jeff Probst and uh, the guy in The Bachelor, I can't think of his name right now, Chris something. Harrison. Uh, Harrison. You know, they may be, that may be it. They may be the last, the last generation of true game show hosts. You know, I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with Milf Manor. <laughs> and in and in that, uh, you know, you've got people that are getting texts on their phone telling them what to do. Yeah. There's the show. I think it's on YouTube or or Facebook. Uh, it's called. Uh, oh, my God. I can't think of what it's called. I'll put links on the website. But it's basically there's this cube in the middle and two people sit down and they're, they're supposed to be like a first date. And this cube is giving them like talking to them. And when it lights up, the first person who hits it gets rid of the other person. And the goal is to last five minutes with somebody on a date, which <laughs> which never happens. But this cube is the host of the show, right? Yeah. And so you start to see this evolution where now we're moving that per that narrator is now being kind of phased out. What do you think about that as the next step in this whole process? It's an interesting idea. Um, I, I'm a little concerned about where AI is going to go uh, just because of... <laughs> 
<laughs> I've watched enough Twilight Zone to know where this might go. Oh, um, I'm with but, you. I'm with yeah. you, buddy. But, I just did a whole a whole episode on the dangers of AI, gadgets, yeah. gizmos. I'll put a link to it. You you might want to watch it and prepare yourself, my friend. But the other thing is it 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 gives flavor to any show that uses AI for a host in the way that you're describing, but also a human host gives flavor to it. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's one reason that I would advocate for keeping human beings in the role of a game show host is because every human being is different, which means every show is going to have its own identity. Uh, right. So that's I, I'm in favor of keeping hosts around. But if you can if you can use AI in a way that's organic, uh, th- mm-hmm. that feels like it makes sense, like what you're describing with people receiving text messages, that's a brilliant use of it. Uh, if you mm-hmm. wanted to do a show without a host to have people get text messages. Um, right. There was MTV had a show called Silent Library a few years back, which was a game show that fundamentally didn't have a host. And it was basically printed materials and graphics that were describing to the contestants what they had to do. And mm-hmm. you were just going off the graphic. A friend of mine, Stodd St. Fleur, who I believe you may have met at that time 10 years ago, he's part of mm-hmm. our group. And okay. he's developed a fabulous idea for a game show. And he stages this for conventions, but he's trying to grow it into something bigger. And I mm-hmm. think he really has something here. But the game is called You can't be serious. Mm -hmm. And it's a word association game like password or like pyramid. But the premise is your partner is Alexa, essentially. And the idea is you're given a word and you're trying to figure out what information to feed to Alexa for her to to give back the word that you're trying to get her to say. And I think (laughs) you're playing password with the computer. Yeah. And I think that is a genius use of AI. I think that's a fascinating thing to do. Um, But the game is called You Can't Be Serious. And it's very clever. And I've had the chance to play it. And it's a very, very entertaining thing. And I think it's got a future, especially now. And I think I I hope he's able to do something with it soon. Um, I I love that idea. It is really I mean, it is a great idea. But I mean, that is everything has to be modernized. Right. And people are forcing AI and computers and robots I mean, I, I think this might be a fad because I think there are certain things that computers just can't replace. And it's that connection, right? The thing we talked about with Monty Hall is his connection to the audience. You're not really going to develop that connection with an XTR 9000 who's hosting your next game show, right, yeah. as an audience member. I mean, I've, I, I'm always hesitant to make predictions about the future because I don't want to be the guy that gets quoted from 1993 saying <laughs> the Internet is a passing fad. You, you don't want to be that guy in the history books. In my own estimation my feeling is i wouldn't get interested in using ai as anything more than a toy and especially i wouldn't really get it that interested in watching any kind of entertainment that revolves around artificial intelligence i think human beings are a lot more interesting yeah i think so i love that quote thing and that episode on ai which i'll put a link for i actually come up with seven of those my favorite is in 2007 the ceo of microsoft said that the iphone would never get any significant market share uh but those quote i love that you brought those up because those quotes are hilarious (laughs) you don't want to be that guy but (laughs) but i mean i don't know i'm going to go on record see i'm a i'm a real man here adam i'm gonna go on record (laughs) and say that ai and computers are a passing fad in game shows or i hope so because i don't think they can replace that human interaction which is what you're watching yeah right I'm, i don't want to watch i'll watch star wars for r2d2 and c3po to interact but i'm not going to watch a game show to see two computers or a computer interact with i mean what's the difference between that and like uh, an atm kiosk yeah. you know i mean i don't know that's me and i may be quoted and i'm perfectly fine if i'm quoted in the year you know 2120 as the idiot who said that <laughs> I, I, i'm okay with that uh but but speaking of idiot one last thing i got to talk to you about here is the monty hall 
problem because <laughs> I was an idiot. I thought about this and it made per I was with 99% of the population and I read it in your book. And I have to say, I'm very impressed with how you broke it down in a way that makes sense. So just I, just really quickly, you know, if people want to get it, you know, they can look this up anywhere. But I just want to talk really quickly about how you experienced that problem and were able to kind of break it down. Well, I, I mean, it's funny. It's there are some things that you get and some things that you don't right away. And so, mm -hmm. I'm not saying this to brag. I grasped the idea as soon as it was explained to me for the first time. But not there me. really are people who, <laughs> who don't yeah. get the idea of the Monty Hall problem right away. And there, yeah. there are some people who uh, who do grasp it right away and figure this out. Right. Um, I was not aware that you were going to ask about this. So let me just explain. I'm wearing a Monty Hall problem T-shirt. You certainly um, are. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this will be a handy visual guide while I explain this. But here's the Monty Hall problem for anyone who's never heard this. It's a very famous theory problem. Uh, it was originally presented in a magazine as the three prisoner problem in the 1950s. And then mm -hmm. somebody reskinned it as a let's make a deal thing in the 1970s. Reskinned it. And then it became very, very popular and very, very notorious because of a yeah. column in Parade magazine in 1991 or so. But here's the problem. You are a contestant on let's make a deal. Motti gives you a choice of three doors. One of the doors is hiding a car. The other two doors are hiding zonks. They're hiding donkeys. You pick your door, and then Monty opens one of the doors that you didn't pick. Monty knows where the car is, and Monty always picks a door that is hiding a donkey. So that leaves two doors, the one that you've picked and the one remaining door that hasn't been opened that you didn't pick. Monty now gives you a chance to switch doors. Now, here's the question. Do you switch your door to improve your odds of winning the car? Do you keep the door that you already picked to improve your odds of winning the car? Or does it not make a difference? Mm -hmm. Now, and I will tell you, what, when I first heard that, I was like every other dummy. And I said, it doesn't make a difference because you don't have any information. And boy, was I wrong. Yeah. Yeah. The... Uh, the correct answer to this, and I'm I'm very emphatically saying the correct answer. It's not people talk about it as if it's a theory, but the thing is, right, right, yeah. Simulations <laughs> no, have been not. run on this. There have been computer yeah. there have been computer programs designed to run simulations on this, and the simulations <laughs> have proven this over and over again. The counterintuitive yeah. answer to this problem is you should switch doors. You improve your chances of winning the car by switching doors. Well, it's math. So, it's just it's just math. I also love that they built an algorithm to yeah. figure this out over and over. But we can't find this. The first guy dressed as the Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> I mean, now uh, let me go ahead and give you because it kind of helps with the visual aid, which is why I made the shirt, because I knew people were yeah. going to talk about this. But let's just go over this very, very simply. So let's say that you've picked door number one in this simulation. Well, door mm -hmm. number one, door number two, door number three. Mm -hmm. You pick door number one, which is hiding a donkey. Again, part of this problem is Monty reveals a door. And he always reveals the door that's hiding a donkey. So Monty is going to reveal door number two. Right. So if you switch doors, the only door that you can switch to now is the one that's hiding the car. So that's one scenario where you win the car. Let's say that you pick door number two. Door number two is hiding a donkey. When Monty opens one of the doors, he's going to open door number one. That's hiding a donkey, which means the only door that you have to switch to is the one that's hiding the car. That's two scenarios where you win. Let's say you pick door number three, which is the door hiding the car. Monty is going to open either door number one or door number two. It doesn't matter, but he's going to show you a door that's hiding a donkey. And if you choose to switch doors, 
you're going to switch to a door that has a donkey. So that's one situation where you win a donkey. So there are two situations where you win a car, and there's one situation where you win a donkey. There's a two out of three chance that you will win the car. What throws people off so much about this is they think of it as a one out of three choice uh, of the of the doors after the door has been opened by Monty. It's not a one out of three choice. Here's the way you need to think of it. It's a one in three probability that the door that you picked to start off with is correct. It's mm -hmm. a two out of three probability that the door that you picked is not correct because there are two other doors. Right. When Monty opens the door and reveals that donkey, that two out of three odds hasn't changed. It's still a two out of three chance that you picked the wrong door. So you're, if you're choosing to switch to that, this is now a two out of three chance that you're picking the right door because you switched to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not yeah, three but, individual doors anymore. It's your choice and the choice that you didn't make, which is those two doors. Right. I mean, the key to it is uh, when, when I broke it down in my, my pea brain, the key that I had was you, you think you, it's one out of three without any information. When a door is revealed, you're actually getting information. And that information has transferred the probability of one third of the door that's opened that now goes to the uh the door the other door that is not opened that you haven't picked and right. that becomes two-thirds so yep. the, the, the 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 fraction just moves and i think that that's what i i people are used to everything being even like if you have cards laid out you know it's a one in 52 you're going to pick a card out but as you reveal cards that is shrinking if anyone who watches poker knows that the more stuff you reveal or the more you know it changes odds significantly in a deck and yeah. with just three doors so i think that's kind of what throws people but it's it's brilliantly put in your book and it's fascinating and it's the living legacy of of monty hall you know yeah. i mean that's you know that's that's he'll be remembered for this long long into the future yeah and he, he was fascinated and i, I think sort of bemused by the by the sudden burst of fame that he got from this math problem that he really had nothing to do with. Um, right. <laughs> he really, he, he got a kick out of it. Um, but it, it is interesting. And one of the things that throws people off also is Monty is important to the problem. A, a lot of people don't understand this issue. The, the key sentence in this problem is Monty knows where the, where the car is. Right. Yeah, and Monty right, right. always opens the door that hides a donkey. That is critical to the, the problem. Right. And, Right. Talking to a reporter from the New York Times who wrote an entire piece about this, yeah. uh, the way that he shaped this is you don't understand how important that is because now imagine it's a deck of cards mm -hmm. and Monty is asking you to find the ace of spades. So you pick a card blindly out of 52 cards. Mm -hmm. Now Monty turns over 50 cards and that leaves one card that hasn't been turned over the one that you've picked. And he says, now, do you want this card or do you want to keep mm -hmm. the card that you originally picked? Do you right. honestly believe that's a 50-50 chance, or do you think that Monty is giving you a big hint about right. what <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah. Well, it's the same thing with, with uh, we talked about with the, the, the products in a row, where he skips over one, yeah. and, you know, it's 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 similar. It's psychology, but there's math involved in this as well. Um, but, but, I mean, this is, you know, for some people, this may be a head-scratcher, but I love that this is really a lasting legacy of Monty Hall that's been captured here. So yeah. uh, thank you for writing it well and explaining it, and, you know, for, for helping to, uh, to make this problem seem easier for those listening. Thank you very much.